Coming up next is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. Hello there and welcome. It's Jerry Pives here in Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. And I know I say this every time, but we have such a treat lined up for you today. Today I have the great pleasure of talking to Steve Oliver of Steve Oliver MMA, Mixed Martial Arts. And you're going to hear some really amazing stuff. In fact, what Steve talks about and what he shares is so full of wisdom and insight and just good common sense that I've decided to ditch my middle bit where I do some reflections because it's all there. It's in the conversation. Stay tuned if you want to listen, but here's a little clip as a taster. I just thought, man, what, what's going to happen? We're going to get raided. I'm going to get locked up. We're going to have a few fines, and I'm going to just go into bankruptcy. I, I 100% thought that this was for the end. But the cops came down, and they were actually on my side, you know. They were quite good. And they said, hey, I 100% I'm feeling you, but um, this is what's happening. So they were okay. But then WorkSafe came down, and it was just comical. These guys looked like they've crawled out from underneath some bed space. I don't think they've ever seen a ray of sunlight, you know, definitely not natural sunlight in their life. Uh, looks like he had been on, you know, every kind of chemo that you could possibly get in you at one time. Not a, not one here. I don't even know if he had any in his eyebrows. This guy looked like the absolute epitome of death walking. And he had about five masks on. I don't know why... Bro, you're almost at death's door. Why would you smother yourself? Like, at least if you're going to die, at least die breathing. You know, he's like got all these masks on, and he comes to the door, and he's trying to tell me I'm a danger to the community. I was just like, I mean, I've got kids that coming in here that are seriously depressed, you know, not coming out of their rooms, not eating, suicidal, uh, all kinds. Uh, and their parents, you know, would be at reception crying with my wife. I don't know how they sleep with themselves, mate. You know, I, now all our kids have got to have a needle in them before they can come and play sport. What a f-ing disgrace. So we're going to run straight from his interview into his Music With Meaning, where he picks seven tracks of music and describes how important they've been in his life. But if you want to be inspired, then listen in to this program, because this guy was an Olympian and a trainer, He won two world titles, three world championships. You want to hear about his attitude to sport and how it's just a tool. It's not about winning the medals. It's actually a tool to produce quality humans. If you want to hear the story of how a very arrogant world champion and successful young man got humbled by someone almost half his size through the martial art of jujitsu, then you're going to hear a rip-roaring story about that. And if you want to discover how this man did all of this while suffering extreme asthma, such that sometimes he was pinned to the ground and he was mainly concerned about whether he could get his next breath, he was less bothered about the holds and the positions he was being placed in as to how he could find a way to actually carry on living. And when it comes to trauma... That's pretty high up on the list, isn't it? And if you're at all wondering what this amazing art of jujitsu is about, well, he's going to tell us the whole story of jujitsu and how it almost died out 
in Japan for very good reasons and how it resurrected itself all around the world. And he is now one of the leading lights in New Zealand for keeping this ancient art of the hidden and the secret art of jiu-jitsu alive here in New Zealand. And if you want to hear a true story of heroism and courage where a Kiwi stood up against the whole state, against the police, against the government, single-handedly, this giant of a man, and how he just stood for what was right and true, then, you know, this man who actually stood up despite fully believing that he was going to be made bankrupt, he'd be put in handcuffs and he'd be put in jail, but he was not going to allow governments to dictate lies and to cheat on the population. And in the conversations, you're going to hear so many down-to-earth references by Steve of the importance of critical thinking, of having our feet on the ground, of being reality-based, and learning how his journey as a warrior, as a jiu-jitsu world warrior, led him to great psychological insight to discover the importance of personal accountability, of personal discipline, how we should not be afraid of those that dream in the night, but be scared of those that dream in the day, and the importance of visualizing what we want. How important is that today? And in all of this incredible journey of this man's life, looking at how he came to understand that life is about some very simple things, right food, right exercise, right rest, how to balance the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. And in fact, at the end of this interview, you're going to hear what really drives this man deep down at the root of his being is a spiritual quest. And if you're excited by all matters spiritual, then listen on. This is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives on RCR, Reality Check Radio. I've got Steve Oliver here with me. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I wonder if we could kick off by you just telling the listeners or sharing with the listeners a little bit about, you know, what you do, what your day's like. Give them a picture of your life. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Anyway, bro, it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we've run a pretty uh, hectic schedule at the house. We've got uh, five kids that live with us. And... Um, you know, we've obviously got the gym and we've, we run tournaments. We're running 13 tournaments this year around the country, uh, jiu-jitsu tournaments uh, that range, you know, the age ranges from four years old right through to 60, you know, 64 years old. And, um, yeah, it is. It's uh, it's hectic. So we get up, you know, pretty early with it. My youngest here is uh, three years old, so uh, it all revolves around her, really. She's the rudder, and she uh, she's up pretty early and jumping on uh, jumping on everybody, making sure that they get up, and uh, then we're into it. And it's just yeah, getting everybody organised for their day, uh, breakfasts, and and uh, me and my wife. Well, you know, I'm not putting any delusions here. My wife does the majority of it. She's an absolute weapon, but uh, I'm up and I'm helping out with the kids' breakfasts and doing what I can to get everybody organized and out the door. And uh, I, I usually drop the two babies, uh, the three and four-year-old at kindy at nine. And then um, from there, we'll come back home and we'll start opening emails and getting on with our day. And, you know, three days a week, two to three days a week, I'll 
head straight down to the gym and, and do a little bit of uh, get about as much time as I get through the week to, uh, you know, help with my mental health and, and physical health. So I go down there two to three days a week if I can. It's not always possible, but I'll try to go down there and do about 45 to an hour. Um, you know, just light work. I'm carrying some serious injuries, so I've just got to work around and do what I can, but just get a sweat up. And then, then if, I'm, uh, if I've trained, I'll come back, eat, and then we're into it. And then we kick, uh, you know, pick the babies up at three o'clock and uh, then we usually head straight to the gym. You know, my wife is quite often working reception, so she'll jump on reception and I'll start taking the kids' classes. I take, um, you know, majority of the kids' classes with a, with a couple of uh, good, keen boys that help out down there and they, they start from four o'clock. So uh, then from the kids' classes at 6.15, the adult program starts. So I'll, um, you know, roll into the adults' program of jiu-jitsu or, or uh, uh, kickboxing, whatever is, you know, beginner, fundamental jiu-jitsu, whatever is on that day. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll try and get out of there. I'll try and get out of there after the first class from 6.15 uh, to around uh, 7.15. I'll try and hand it over. Or, you know, on my uh, there's two or three nights where I go right through to 8.45 and then we'll tie the up, lock up, come home and, and if my wife's working on reception, all the kids are, it's a late one, you know, so everyone's scrambling, trying to feed them and trying to, you know, trying to settle them down for for bedtime, you know. So, um, and then we just basically pass out and then we uh, hit the replay button right and early the next day, you know. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's action-packed, but uh, oh, it's, you know, I mean, it's a great time with the kids, though. The kids, it's a beautiful age. These kids, uh, like I said, the youngest are three and the other one's four. And then we've got uh, Mia, she's six. We've got uh, Van, he's 10. And we've got Charlie, she's uh, 14. So it's a good spread. And, uh, you know, the older kids, Charlie helps out a lot with the babies. And uh, it's a really good dynamic. And, yeah, it's, that's, that's our life, mate, in a nutshell. That sounds pretty full on, Steve, and also very full of not just busy full, but full of the kids, the family. You guys sound like you're running the classic mom and pop business. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I start, you know, it's not, to be honest, I'm 52 now, you know, there's um, there's a challenge with the kids, you know, to, uh, I've got a younger, you know, there's obviously younger boys coming through that I get to help out once in a while, you know, with the kids' classes. But I really find that, you know, feel it's important time for me to be on the on the mats with the kids because my kids are a part of the part of the kids program. You know what I mean? So that's you know, that's a big part of our time together is on the mats, you know, teaching them just basic fundamental skills and life lessons. Yeah, I'm very interested in that last bit you just said about life lessons. But before we go there, what about um just tell the listeners who may not know, what's your gym called and whereabouts are you? I mean, my father was Don Oliver. So he he started, well, you know, my grandfather had a, you know, run run just boxing classes out of his house. But then my dad opened a commercial gym in the 60s. And um, like I said, he's, he's been dead almost 30 years. And I, I shot off overseas and spent probably 20, best of 20 years overseas just uh, acquiring the knowledge to, you know, to give back to the community. That was always the goal, was to come back and open a gym and, 
and to give back because, I, you know, I really valued those days when I was young. I was born and raised in the gym and, you know, on the, on the gym premises, basically. That's I'd come home from school and I'd stay on the gym, in the gym till bedtime, you know. Um, and that's really where I learned most of my life skills was in the gym, you know, looking up to different role models that were, you know, uh, beautifully placed in my life and it didn't, you know, they didn't have to be big, uh, they didn't have to be there a long time to uh, inspire me. You know, as a kid, I'd see, you know, at five years old, I was on the gym floor, if I saw a you know, kid come through that was six or seven and he seemed to have more discipline, I'd try and emulate that, you know, even if he was there one day, you know, and then because I felt a responsibility of, you know, being part of the, I felt like I was part of the, you know, the, my dad run it, so it was my responsibility to to do the best I could. So I was always trying to emulate. My dad was bringing, you know, I mean, he was an Olympic lifter, uh, went to four Olympics, and then was a trainer for a couple of Olympics too, the, the national team trainer. So we had Olympic, you know, level lifters coming through the gym all the time. And, you know, I just remember smelling liniment and, and mm. you know, chalk everywhere and, these big monsters would come in and hurl up, uh, you know, gargantuan weights and dropping the weights. And it was just, yeah, it was uh, pretty inspiring as a young man, you know, to see that. And I'd just try and do my bit as I progressed through the ranks. And that's what I tried to do with, uh, I tried to simulate that with um, with our program, you know, and uh, just giving kids a safe place to be, to, to grow up and to, to give them dreams, you know, to aspire to being a world champion or being a successful athlete, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's that was my motivation. And so I went off overseas and, and done my bit over there, came back and then opened up the gym. So we're Oliver MMA, just, you know, it's not Don Oliver's anymore. It's just straight Oliver MMA. And we're based, our headquarters is based out West Auckland, but we've got a, a few branches around the place. Uh, my father opened a gym with a good friend of his, Alan, Henson in uh, in Wellington early in the days, and uh, I became like brothers with his his son uh, Eugene Henson and Eugene. They were great wrestlers, you know. Just I don't think Eugene's ever lost a wrestling match. So um, we've continued that relationship. So uh, we run an Oliver MMA out of his uh, gym down in Wellington, and we've got a branch out um, South Auckland. We've also got one in Browns Bay and. Got one down in Napier, and uh, yeah, it's uh, you know it was just being. I started quite early in the as far as jujitsu. Jujitsu was my focus. I started lifting. You know, I was just put into environments where lifting heavy weights was an expression of just uh, achievement. So it was all focused on lifting weights until I was you know. But I wrestled, and also my dad, my father, my grandfather was a boxing was a boxer, so we always, you know, were throwing hands around and wrestling and stuff, but uh, lifting was my real focus until I hit my um, early 20s, and then I shot off when my father died, I shot off overseas and, and done 10 years in the States, wrestling and doing uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so I just felt like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was, was, you know, the best skill set 
and it's I, I still believe it is. I think there's no self-defense that comes close to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as far as effectiveness and reality-based techniques. So, uh, yeah, I, I specialize in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and brought that home, and now we've got a great program. You know, we mix it all up. We've got weights. We've got Jiu-Jitsu, you know, for young and old. We've got kickboxing. We've got uh, wrestling. And we've got uh, we, we all mix it up mixed martial arts. So we, we've got a, a great program of mixed martial arts and, and and some good fighters coming through there too. So. Well, you didn't do so badly yourself as a competitor, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, I just got in early and I had a good base. You know, I mean, uh, it's evolved over the last twenty to thirty years. The whole, you know, because it's gone mainstream. It's been a lot of lessons learned, and um, now after you know working it out, you know, it's really. Uh, the best possible base is a strength and fitness base and wrestling. So I, I wrestled from a young age and I obviously was in the gym lifting weights and had a great strength uh, base uh, coming into the sport, which was just, you know, just the way it was. But, um, yeah, I did well um, because of, uh, you know, the, the work that I'd done before beforehand. It put me in good stead. Well, I think you were world champion, weren't you? I, I won a couple of world titles, just some different stuff. Um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, is IBJJF, it's uh, brown belt. And I was um, Pancration world champion. It's like a um, type of, uh, you know, combative, sort of like mixed martial arts. It's a little bit different to, you know, the modern version of mixed martial arts, but it was along the same lines. So, uh, yeah, I jumped into a couple of those and done okay. I'd done it, you know, done... Good at, uh, at lifting. Also, I went to like three world championships as a lifter, under twenty-three years old, and I was the first junior ever to um, take a medal as a, um, in a in a world championship. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I did, I, I done okay. I mean, there wasn't a lot of opportunities, but we, you know, we did what we could, and you know, there's just not the exposure or the the connection with the internet, and you know, knowing what was happening everywhere, it just wasn't available. So. Yeah, we uh, we done all right, you know, for what, what we had and the opportunities we were given. You are listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. And today I'm talking to Steve Oliver of Oliver MMA Gyms. I'm thinking that you mentioned earlier about it's more than just physical prowess. The, that what you're talking about is, you know, what I'm hearing anyway, is that for you there was discipline and there were there's a kind of life skills going on here that what you do at your gym would you describe it as purely physical or would you say there's other stuff that's going on in your gym oh 100 it's not just physical you know what i mean like I, to be honest um you know just the way uh with weights in it it's quite uh isolated and um at a young age you know 20 years old, I was one of the strongest at that age in the world. And a real arrogance, you know, I had a real arrogance. I just thought if you, you know, to be honest, my mindset was if you couldn't bench press 200 kilos, you weren't worth talking to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was. I was arrogant, mate. There's no two ways about it. And, um, and I mean, to, to be a champion, you'd hit need this. Like, you know, honestly, the more I see – uh, you know, high performance sport and the, you know the elite sportsmen. I just it almost puts me off. You know, what I mean, um, just you need to definitely need arrogance and a belief in yourself to be a champion. But it's very, very rare to get someone that's got a, a good balance. You know, what I mean, they usually 
And, you know, that was my focus in life, was to be the world champion, you know, a world champion lifter, world champion jiu-jitsu, MMA. I, that was my whole purpose in life. And uh, I was quite self-centered and and with with the lifting became very arrogant. And um, and I needed, you know, it was just well-placed where I needed to, I went to the best gyms in the world for jiu-jitsu and, you know, that's what I needed in my life. I needed to be humbled, and that's what jiu-jitsu does. It just brings you down. It doesn't matter how big the guy is. You know, my first experience was when I went overseas. I I jumped on the mats, and um, I went to a, a gym with uh, Hickson Gracie. I didn't really know who Hickson was. He was just one of these Gracies that uh, had done well, but he was the champion of the family, and, and, the champ- and, and the family was the best in the world. So I was effectively at the best gym in the world, and we were getting uh, Olympic – champion judo you know practitioners coming through we're getting the best of the best coming through world champion wrestlers and uh i turned up there and i got um partnered up with a i was probably 125 kilos lean at that stage and uh, just coming from lifting i hadn't really had the years to shed you know it's just a natural thing where you shed the muscle you know um to be more effective, you know, more efficient, but I hadn't had those years. So I just jumped in against a guy that was probably about 75, 80 kilos. And I thought that I'd make short work of him, but he basically dislocated both arms. He popped one arm and I just thought, well, that it must be an accident and that's not going to happen. And then he just, uh, he, he done the other arm. So it was my first experience, uh, pretty much one of my first roles. And that was Henry Aikens. He became a, a lifelong friend. He's actually godfather to my daughter. So uh, I sat out and I just watched classes for about six weeks because I was effectively had like two broken arms. So uh, I just kept coming along with the class and they all thought that I was an undercover cop. And um, so I wasn't well received, you know, to the club. And uh, I just kept turning up. And then one day I just said to the guys, guys, you know, because it was only 42 cents in a dollar back then. So every class that was $20 was effectively $50 New Zealand. So I was going through money and I said to the guys, hey, does any work, you know, let me know. And I knew that Henry, the one that had done the damage to my arms, run a, um, he runs security. So, you know, a few weeks went by and he says, hey, we've had a couple of guys pull out. Do you want to work tonight? So I was like, yeah, put me in. And, and that night ended up being the, you know, I worked with Henry over 10 years and that was the, that was the night. You know, it was the worst night I'd ever seen, you know, and, and to this day, that was probably one of the worst nights. It was just, it was a punk gig and uh, these guys were just running mosh pits and it was just out of control. And uh, we were just active, to, to put it mildly, all night, you know, and uh, halfway through the night, I was just covered in blood. There was just blood everywhere. And uh, the guys just said, mate, if you ever want a job, you've got a job with us, you know. So from that night onwards, I was... We were tight with Henry every time I went over. I had a job, and yeah, uh, you know, there's some of the best experiences of my life uh, in LA working security and a really special part of my life, you know. What a warrior lifestyle you had, and it goes all the way back to your granddad. Is that right? Yeah, he was a um, he was only small Irishman. Um, my grandmother was. Uh, was Welsh and Scottish, and she was because my family is quite big. I'm actually one of the smallest of the family. My uh, cousins are, are much bigger than me, and my dad uh, was you know, he was a big unit. 
And that's where the size comes from, through my grandmother. My, my grandfather was actually quite tiny. But, yeah, he was, he was uh, right into boxing and, and sport and stuff. So he passed that on to his sons. And all my uncles have uh, just this real vein of, uh, uh, of discipline. You know, mo- to put it mildly, it's almost borders on, uh, you know, mental illness, the way that we take discipline in, in sport. You know, my, my father was, uh, took it to all levels in, in, um, in lifting. His brother, that's actually you know structurally bigger than he was, was a marathon runner and run you know well, you know uh, New Zealand record times and marathons and and he was a, a big man, but obviously you know for the running he muscle wise didn't carry much muscle, but he was just a, a big structurally big big man. And then his other brother was an international golfer, and then another brother was a uh, international tennis player. So they all pick different sports, but they all done very well in their in their you know disciplines. And um, so yeah, there is a vein of uh, just I don't know they just really pick something and get it in their teeth and just uh, won't let it go. You know, so uh, yeah, I think that comes through from my, my my grandfather, but the size comes from my grandmother. Yeah, funny love. But you know, in all of this. There's something different about you. I mean, I don't know your relatives, and I'm, you know, I don't, I can't say what kind of people they were. But what you portray is a, you know, tough world, a world of discipline, a world of um, physical prowess, and and yet with you, as I'm talking with you, I get this sense that it's about a lot more than that for you. Am I right, or am I fishing off a false side of the jetty? A hundred percent. I think. Uh... I think sport's just a tool, you know, looking back on it, you know, now I'm, I'm, you know, seen a few years, so I'm just looking back on, and sport should be used as a tool, and it's to, a tool to produce quality humans, you know I mean? That's, that's where the process should lead somebody. At the end of the day, that's all we've got, who we are, you know, medals. I remember going underneath the house at, 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 our, at our house back home and just seeing Dad's Olympic records and, you know, Olympic medals and gold medals all just on the floor, smashed, you know, certificates smashed on the floor and I'd just go up with this piece of glass and, and a certi- half a certificate and say, Dad, here's all your stuff. He's like, I know I won it, you know, I just, it's meaningless to me, you know. And that's honestly, once you've achieved something, it just, you know, I've seen Mark, I've seen the best guys in the world, Mark Hunt, I trained with Mark for many years and, and he's got belts and he just, you know, they're just, in the corner, just dust, and it just, you know, people think that that's the end goal is to win a world title, but it's just, it should be just used as a tool to produce good people, you know what I mean? And it, uh, it's a great experience, but then, you know, life night and day rolls over and then life goes on and it's just a, it's just a memory and it's just your memory. I mean, people might remember that you've done it, but just the lack of luster and the, you know, just, fades with time and it's like I said it's just the jiu-jitsu was a real important part of my journey because it it humbled me you know I spent years and the the thing is I I get a lot of people making comments now you know uh, for my size they just say man for your size you're super um, technical I know why because I was asthmatic growing up I was uh, yeah it's quite nasty quite serious uh, asthma and, uh, you know, I was strong. I was strong first phase. You know, first two minutes, I could just bench press people off and I wouldn't have to worry about too much 
technical ability, but after two minutes, I was basically dying under there, you know. And when Jiu-Jitsu first came out, it was a real tough environment. There's no just walking off the mat or asking coach for time out. I mean, you would have been just seen the door, you know. It would have been, yeah, toilet break, but just don't bother coming back, you know. So I was effectively having an aspirin attack under some of the biggest, baddest units on the planet for hours for the for, for the first First three, four years, I was just learning how not to die. You know, I mean, I was having a full-blown asthma attack and, and having these guys dropping serious pressure on top. And, you know, it was just how do I work out how not to suffocate to death in the next 10 seconds? You know, okay, if I get on my side, I can survive a little bit longer, okay? If I pull my elbow into my side, I can get a little bit more to my side because if I'm flat with his body weight straight down on my chest, if I'm lying on the ground, if I'm flat with his body weight straight down my chest, my lungs are inhibited so I can't, you know, they can't inflate and deflate. But if I can get on my side, my, uh, you know, the bone structure of my rib cage will support my lungs so I can actually, you know, start breathe a little bit, a little bit more effectively, but efficiently, but. It's definitely not uh, good times, you know. So it took me a long time just to not to learn how to not die in class, and then then you start okay. If I can get on my side, if I can swim my arm, if I can get my arm underneath, and you know, then I'm starting to get some good times, you know. And then a couple of years went by, and then I'm starting to, you know, not only not die, I'm now I'm having I'm getting on top, and I'm having my way with these guys a little bit, you know. And it was a real slow process because I was battling asthma and. You know, the, the teaching techniques at the time was not too much technical ability. It was just get in there and just just get amongst it. And um, that's definitely what happened. But, uh, you know, just through persistence, it wasn't through any, you know, any uh, special gift that I had. You know, it was just through uh, just persistence that I stayed and, and learned how to deal with these uh, challenges, you know. But it was the humility. That's what, you know, you don't know what horsepower someone can have by looking at them. I used to, I used to pride myself on because I was a gym instructor. I used to pride myself on knowing specific physical attributes just by looking at someone. I'd say, okay, he'll, he'll have a good squat, he'll have a good bench, or he won't be fit or whatever. Jiu-jitsu just threw that whole perception out the window. It doesn't matter, yeah. mate. Like Mark, Mark Hunt, you just think that guy was slow and be unfit. Well, you couldn't make a worse mistake, you know, if you're facing the man in the cage because he's super quick. And the, the guy's got a fuel tank that you've, you you would not even understand. You know what I mean? It's just unbelievable. And just people, that's where special people, you know, these guys are special people. that They've got special attributes that, uh, you know, that's why they perform to a really, really high level. And, and the thing with Mark is he's almost in costume. You know, he's in this costume that looks like it's not going to perform. But then at the end of the day, when he puts it, you know, when he pulls the trigger, by the time you work out it's a costume, you're always, you know, usually picking yourself up off the floor. <laughs> so, uh, by, by costume, you don't mean he's actually wearing a costume. You mean his body is the costume? Yeah, yeah. Like he walks in there and he looks like he's out of shape and he looks like he's unfit and and slow. But uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. You are listening to real people in the psychotherapist chair. And today I'm talking to Steve Oliver of Oliver MMA Gyms. Uh, do you know, it's so interesting hearing you talk about you going through asthma with some guy sitting on top of you. 
and not being able to breathe. I mean, how long did the asthma last? Did it finally leave you? What what happened to the asthma? I was such a bad asthmatic that even if I used to eat inhalers, you know, weekly. And, and what, half of it was because I got so big. I got up to 145 kilos at one stage at, when I was about 21 uh, or 22. Um, just, you know, 95% of it was muscle. But it got to a point where I could actually, you know, I'd spend my whole life lifting and eating and, and my body started to know what it's what it was there for, you know. So it really got efficient at making muscle. And I was just getting bigger, and I knew, you know, I'd had asthma, so it was it was starting at the end of my, uh, lift, you know, junior lifting career at twenty two. I was, I knew I had to make a change because it wasn't healthy. I was, you know, breathing hard, you know, just going up a set of stairs. So my fitness level was non-existent, but my, you know, lifting weights fives and under, I was unstoppable. If I could get, I felt like if I could get under. You know, if I could get the right position under a weight, I'd lift anything, you know, and that was part of the, the psychological, you know, part, part of the lifting because a, a good lifter never fails, you know. In, in training, you should get to a point where you can, you know, you're always pushing yourself, but you're predicting your weights to a certain, to a really high degree so that you never fail in practice, you know. You come very, very close, but you never fail. So in the end, you walk into a tournament, you don't just don't believe that you can fail, you know. So, um, you know, it is a psychological thing. It's physical and psychological. That's, you know, they go together, you know, and then psychological is huge. What's a five? You said fives or under. What does that, is that five different weights on the bar? Five reps, five repetitions. Ah, uh, right. So, so when I, you're under five, you're doing bigger weights, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, when you go fives and under, it's you're getting up to the top of, you know, you're getting into, um, I used to get more nervous uh, doing threes and under, you know, three reps and under on bench, squat, and deadlift, and I used to getting into a cage. I just felt it was deadly, you know. When I would, you know, I was getting to a point where I was get, uh, taking a squat, you know, the squat is obviously where you're standing up and you take the weight and you step back and, and bend your knees, go all the way down, and all, you know, at least the parallel and back up. But I'd, I'd take the weight, step off, and I'd feel my shins bowing underneath my calves. I felt I felt like this can go at any second, you know, and it's not going to be pretty. And it, it has. There's been lifters that just step off with the weight and they've had a stress fracture and their whole their legs just break underneath them, you know what I mean? And, and bench press, I'd, I'd lie down, you'd take the weight, and when you sit that weight, you know, you sit at arm's length on the weight, I'd feel the bones underneath my biceps bowing. You know, like you just know that you're pushing the limits, and at any second this thing could, to could go. You know, but it's um, it's another thing that you try, train your mind to, and 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 uh, there's no, there can be not one or a point, a zero point one percent of doubt. You know, I mean, you've got to meet the challenge head on and and push through. You know, you've got to actually break through the challenge if you you know same as a rugby tackle or same if you don't go in with full commitment you're gonna pay the price and it's the same with heavy lifting the same with anything in the sport you've got to go in fully committed because you're the only one that can actually pull it off you know everyone else doesn't believe that you can do it but you're the only one that can believe so you can do it you know so, so the, uh, asthma, yeah. the asthma never went away then steve not for a long time no, I, I, I got to a point where even if I didn't have an inhaler on me, I'd have an asthma attack. You know, there was many nights where I'd wake up in the middle of the night, 
to just go to the toilet and I realized where's my inhaler and I'd end up just destroying like the house, pulling the stove out, you know, just cupboards out, looking for inhaler, having an attack. You know, um, yeah, it was a real, I was really psychologically attached to that. I had, you know, when I was young, I went to hospital many times for pneumonia and, and serious asthma attacks. And, and it wasn't, I remember just spending nights, you know, they, the treatment back in my day was they'd run a hot kettle, you know, you'd, you'd put a kettle on in the night and you'd steam up the room. To be honest, I think I think you could do anything worse, mate. You know, when I went to the States, I got um, a relief from my asthma for some reason. All the smog and all the pollution and all the so-called, you know, bad elements over there as far as air um, quality, I'd have, you know, my asthma was actually better over there than it was here. I think it was part of it was the humidity, you know, and I spent numerous nights up, you know, basically suffocating for hours and hours on end with a bloody kettle and this mist in the room so thick and everything damp and that trying to breathe and, oh it was torture you know and uh there was no quick fixes when i was young as far as asthma you know these days i mean you've got the nebulizers and stuff that really give you a quick relief but the, i can't remember having the nebulizer until later on you know but uh when i was real young so yeah asthma was a real issue in my life and um you know, but uh, I did. I grew out of it in the end. I pushed my lungs to such a point where they had to develop, you know, to to deal with, you know, the load that I was asking from them, you know. So I was every day we were rolling hours and hours on the end. So it was, it wasn't, didn't happen straight away. I started jujitsu when I was 22 and I, I uh, didn't really grow out of the asthma until probably early 30s, you know, mid 30s. Mm. Wow. And when you talk about we were rolling, you, you mean rolling on the mat, right? Yeah, that's what they call sparring is rolling. You know, they roll, yeah. you know, they wrestle to the ground and then you roll around on the ground. They just, you know, they just basically just call it a roll, you know. My only training in martial arts is watching Karate Kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, that, and that's what it was everyone's experience with Bruce Lee, and that's. That's where the MMA, you know, the the sport of MMA has evolved. Just the reality-based arts, you know, everybody knows karate. There's one or two strikes in there that are reality-based, but a lot of it's just, it is an art. Yeah. You know, it's not a martial skill as such, it's an art, you know. My son has taken up jiu-jitsu in the last few years. And I went down to a, my first ever jiu-jitsu tournament just a month ago down here in Wanaka. And I was absolutely amazed because obviously, you know, I'm not a martial arts guy, but I, I've spent my life doing body work, massage and stuff, as well as being a psychotherapist. But what was interesting for me was how real it all was. Uh, I'd never thought about um, the situation of a, of a combat, someone needing to, as it were, take someone down and disable them. And watching the tournament of jiu-jitsu was just amazing to me. It was like the technical skill in maneuvering and moving your body and knowing where the other fighter's body were. It was just quite incredible to me to see the power of close contact uh, uh, technique. It was really very impressive to me. Oh, the technical side of jiu-jitsu is, is it's unbelievable. You know, people have no idea the complexity, you know, complexity of, of, of the art. And, you know, before the internet, people would spend their lifetime 
doing, uh, you know, because the martial art, the, the, you know, jujitsu came from the samurai when he would lose his sword. That was the samurai's martial art of combat. You know, he would uh, put someone down and uh, either choke or joint, you know, manipulate the joint so he couldn't defend the choke and then, and then the choke, you know. So uh, that's where it evolved from. And, and people would spend, you know, isolated people in villages would spend their whole lifetime and they would develop one move, you know, and, and a lot of these moves are called after different people that develop them, you know, Kimura, you know, a man called Kimura, you know, was really famous for this, this Kimura move and it's like a key lock onto your arm and, and these guys have spent lifetimes just developing one or two moves. With Now with the power of the internet, you know, lifetimes worth of work. You, you you learn that in one session. You learn three or four different moves that spent you know that people deve devoted their lives to in a, in a beginner fundamental class in the first night. You know, and and jujitsu is a type of technique that if someone approached you on the street, it's so fundamentally the concept so easy and simple that you'll pull it off straight away and and the thing is people just just the power of, of understanding what's a good and bad position a lot of people don't even know what a good and bad position is on the, on the ground you know and the perception is what well, a lot of strikers you know a lot of kickboxers and boxers they get this false sense of security around oh nobody's ever going to get in on me and put me down the only reason they have that perception is because they spar other boxers and other kickboxers that don't want to come in and put them down so the other boxer wants to stay at arm's length. If you're a boxer, you want to stay at arm's length. So you stay at arm's length and, and play this play this game of let's hit each other at arm's length, same as kickboxing. But as soon as you get a wrestler that doesn't want to play at that distance, they cannot fathom how easy it is to get in and to put put you down. You know, it's unbelievable. And that's where the sport, you know, that's where the, the power of jiu-jitsu is. It's so easy to put people down. I mean, you've, I've got to come in. As I come in, you've got to pop off your most lethal shot at the perfect time to knock me out. And if you don't, it's over for you. Because once I'm in, you've got nothing. Once my chest is on your chest, as far as a striker, your horsepower is, is gone. You know, you can't generate any horsepower with me being that close. And once I'm that close, I have your hips. So I can just go double unders. I get my arms under your arms. Well, there's, there's numerous techniques but the most common one is just i get my arms underneath your arms i control your hips and i just lie you down you know and they just cannot believe it's happening <laughs> it's uh it is it's a real life experience for a lot of people and once they once they feel how exposed they are and when they're on the ground jujitsu is just designed to to use your instincts against you as soon as you if i'm on the ground and you're on top of me sitting on my chest or whatever if I try and punch you, if I try and push you off, that's exactly what you're going to do. And as soon as you extend an arm, you get it broken. So that's one instinct. You're going to try and push away. As soon as you extend your arm, I extend it properly. And then another thing is if they eat one or two punches in the face, they're going to instinctively go belly down and they're going to try and stand up. As soon as someone spins underneath to their belly, They've exposed their back to me, so they can't see what I'm doing for a starter, and that's all I do is choke them. They choke them, you know, put an arm around your neck, and that's that's the last thing you see is the gravel as you go to sleep. Yeah, it's it's so perfect and it's so precise jujitsu. It's unbelievable the scientific part of it, you know. And that, and that 
you know, after the Second World War, the jiu-jitsu, uh, it was dying out, actually. Jiu-jitsu was dying out because uh, the Japanese would only teach people that were worthy. You know, if you're a good student, you know, a good academic student or you're a good good son or whatever, then you're worthy enough to learn jiu-jitsu. But the problem is that the guys that were worthy weren't interested. So jiu-jitsu was actually starting to die out jiu-jitsu in uh, Japan. But there was a guy named Count Coma that actually moved to uh, Brazil. And he was a top player as far as, you know, full contact jiu-jitsu. And, and he got residence uh, through a politician in Brazil and uh, named it Gracie. And as a gift, he taught all his sons jiu-jitsu. And in Brazil, it wasn't a, you know, a, a hierarchy thing. You could, if you were keen to train, they would let you train. So it exploded in Brazil, absolutely exploded in Brazil. And the death of jiu-jitsu in, in Japan was actually after the Second World War, the Europeans came in and the Japanese were just paranoid about the Europeans getting a hold of the, you know, the real powerful killing art on the ground. So what they did is they separated the standing art, which they called judo, and the uh, hidden art, which was jujitsu, they took that out. So they just said, let's let the Europeans focus on the judo and we'll keep the, the killing secrets to ourselves. But yeah, the, it went to Brazil and exploded in Brazil. That's why they call it. And, and Brazilians just, it evolved at a rate of knots over in Brazil because they let so many people have, uh, you know, train, almost become their national sport. And the technical, uh, you know, just the technical prowess of the, the art just went to a whole nother level. That's why they call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now. That's why they call it what? Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Is it a separate thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's almost, a, you know, to a higher degree, you know, to Jiu-Jitsu to a higher technical degree. But now it's gone global and it's everybody's got it and everybody's adding to it. And it's, yeah, it's it's amazing. Every Every possible scenario on the ground, you know, like boxing might be one, let's call it two two positions to be generous. Jiu-Jitsu, it might be 40 positions, equally as technical in every position, you know, so you just can't compete, you know. I mean, you're, you, you know, a boxer might be great at, at his one position, but all I've got to do is get in on the perfect timing, put him down, and then the guy's absolutely lost, you know. I mean, it's, uh, and, and with the technical dominance on the ground it just makes short work of people it really does you are listening to real people in the psychotherapist chair and today i'm talking to steve oliver of oliver mma gyms well what an amazing uh journey through the history of jiu-jitsu i never knew that it came so close to dying out and that the Japanese were wanting to keep it a secret because of its power. That's a really, that's a really, um, well, what is that? Well, that's a really powerful story, that is. Yeah, just amazing how it's come through, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, like you said, the transformation of your son, that's it, generic. You know, that happens so many times. I see kids coming in, they've got no confidence, mate. And, and jiu-jitsu just gives confidence, and, and, you know, especially when they start competing. You know, they don't have to win, but they just walk that line of doubt and in in conquering that achievement of hand to hand combat. There's no bigger there's no bigger challenge really. I mean, in a, and especially in a kid's life, you know, it feels like they're walking to their doom, you know. You know, just I see kids mature overnight. 
you know, get humbled and they just turn into great kids, you know. Uh, yeah. And that confidence spills right through their whole life. It just permeates everything, permeates their academic. I see kids that are horrible at school come to jiu-jitsu, you know, struggle on a few tournaments, maybe even win a couple of tournaments. Next minute their parents are coming back and just saying, mate, it's night and day. My kid's achieving at school, you know. It's because they believe they can achieve. They believe in themselves, you know. That's key with kids. You know? And you can learn it at any age, right? Yeah, we start our kids at uh, four years old. Could I start learning it? 100%. We start, you know, we, we've got a, a fundamental program in, in uh, any age, uh, and we've got 60-plus-year-olds in there. And you don't have to be a gymnast to, to learn these techniques. You know, a lot of uh, the pathway for a lot of people is they bring their kids in and they sit on the sideline they see how effective and how simple the techniques are and next minute the parents are involved that's how it happens and the sparring man i couldn't if i had a kickbox spar i could only do that once a week at my age you know because you get banged up and but with jujitsu you can pretty much roll every day you know what i mean and if you get caught into a, a, a situation like that it's a submission it's a submission art so i submit so i tap for me to give up is i either say yep give up or i tap i just tap him and he'll let go so there's a really good understanding within the within the team that you know as soon as you tap you let go and then you move on better for the experience and that's that's why it's so humbling you know I mean you get tapped you can't say basically when someone's twisting your arm up your back or you, you can't breathe you've got to basically say to that human please let me go you know and you you say please let me go hundreds of thousands of times over your career. You just can't have an ego when you've had to beg people to let you go that many times. And I see that. You know, I see the difference between striking arts, guys that perform in the striking art, and guys in the submission art, you know, jiu-jitsu. I just see the difference in, in humility is huge. You know, the submission art guys just got no ego. They don't care. You know, they can be the best in the world and they're just the most, you know, epic guys. They don't care. They don't care who you are. They're just decent people, you know. In general, it's not you know it's not always the case, but in, you know ninety percent of the time it's uh, that, that's how it is. But with strikers, I you know because we've seen it you know through Pride and UFC and that strikers that are predominantly striking are quite you know arrogant. Now you're talking about my territory, really, which is the territory of the ego, the territory of how we can do damage to ourselves and to other people through not having proper control or understanding or awareness of of our ego of our of our kind of impulses and i know steve that you you had to stand up for what you do um, in fact you stood up almost alone uh in just a very few other people around new zealand when the government mandates came in and businesses were supposed to shut you you refused could you tell a little bit about what happened there because i don't know your full story on this but i i heard rumors but i don't know what you did and what because it sounded to me like you you had to stand up and not be put down well you know i mean like i i, I believe i'm continuing on a legacy of my father here you know what i mean uh intergenerational legacy of just contributing and trying to help community and um COVID came along I as everybody did didn't know you know never heard never seen anything like this you know and it swept the world and you know we did we stocked up with food and sat around for a couple of weeks and 
but I've got a great network internationally, and I was just always, what do you think? You know, asking guys around the around the world, what do you think? What do you think? You know, like just keeping it real, really. You know, not just relying on the news for my information. You know, not relying on that one source of uh, irrefutable truth. You know, <laughs> and um, you know, people were just saying, man, you know, what's happening on TV, and and, and we started to see it. You know. So everyone's dying of this stuff. And I was just looking around my streets and my, my networks, and I know a lot of people, and it just wasn't true. It just wasn't ringing true. You know, you, you're saying one thing, and, and it's absolutely something else is happening. So from early days, it wasn't ringing true, and it dragged on, and we just were over it. You know, you know, we by that stage, you know, what into the second, third lockdown. I mean, first lockdown, we might have done our bit, and... But we weren't being exposed on any level to the so-called death virus. You know, we, I just wasn't seeing it. So we were just like, nah. In our reality, uh, you know, contact is more important than this nonsense, you know, of not being able to see my family. Not, no way. You know, there's just no way. So we just started to just really uh, come down on the priority list pretty quickly. And then uh, as it was coming down on our priority list, you'd think that, you know, it, it would have happened to the same as far as the government. They would have been putting the pieces together and, you know, working out the same, coming to the same uh, conclusions, but they weren't. They were escalating it. Everything was escalating. And I was, on our scale of things, it was de-escalating. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just pretty much were laughing at it by the time they were, really kicking off into high gear and uh then they said you know jacinda was saying oh we never you know we'll never mandate it and uh you know which was making me nervous because you start talking those things you know it's pretty much it's an option so next minute i remember i didn't really listen to the to the updates i didn't interest me and you know i just didn't want to that lady was really uh quite nauseating to be honest in the end you know the team of five million and just really playing to the community and trying to put this perception of a caring, adoring sort of uh, leader where she was just, you know, you could just see straight through it. But anyway, one uh, news brief that came over and she just says, now we're mandating gyms where you can't open a gym unless you're vaccinated. And honestly, man, I, I've got a pretty strong stomach and uh, I was I was physically sick, man, like when I heard that, you know. It's one. It's the only time in my life that I've had a physical response from you know hearing something like that. So, and uh, I just thought straight away, well, this, you guys got an, you got an issue now, because there's no way this lady that's got about you know you can see that she's never been in a gym. Maybe I, I don't even know if she's done a burpee in her life, or you know, probably quarter of a game of netball and had to sit out. You know what I mean? Or she's been pulled off because she's t so useless. You know, that's <laughs> tell me. That, that after bleeding, you know, for 20 years, for, 30, you know, my whole life, that now you're going to tell me I can't run a gym? There's just no way it's not happening. And my mum was alive at the time, and I run it past her and just said, what do you think? Because this could be the end of it, right? This is not my, you know, just my legacy. This was my mother's, you know, she she knew, you know, I wasn't obviously in in tune with how my father would have thought and she just gave me my her blessing and just says man we're here for the community and you do you know if this is the hill that we the whole business goes under on we're happy to die here you know so i was like well that's all i need so we're not clothing you guys can 
all the cops, you can do whatever you want, but you're going to have to take me out in handcuffs because there's just no way you're taking that right, stripping that right from me of uh, giving back to the community and just having a, a place where the community is a, a safe place. It's, you know, it's uh, a hub for the community. So, yeah, that's what happened. And um, they, you know, they had, they, they came out, the cops came out and they were quite, uh, I just thought, man, what, what's going to happen? We're going to get raided. I'm going to get locked up. We're going to have a few fines and I'm going to just go into bankruptcy. I, I 100% thought that this was for the end. But the cops came down and they were actually on my side, you know. They were quite good. And they said, hey, I 100% I'm feeling you, but um, this is what's happening. So they were okay. But then WorkSafe came down and it was just comical. These guys look like they've crawled out from underneath some bed space I don't think they've ever seen a, a ray of sunlight, you know, definitely not natural sunlight in their life. Uh, looks like he had been on, you know, every kind of chemo that you could possibly get in you at one time. Not a, not one here. I don't even know if he had any in his eyebrows. This guy looked like the absolute epitome of death walking. And he had about five masks on. I don't know why... Bro, you're almost at death's door. Why would you smother yourself? Like, at least you're gonna, if you're going to die, at least die breathing. You know, he's like got all these masks on, and he comes to the door, and he's trying to tell me I'm a danger to the community. I was just like, I've got kids coming in here that have been – how disgusting. I don't, These guys, I don't know how the sports – these sports that fucking towed the line, I don't know how they sleep with themselves, mate. You know, I now – all our kids have got to have a needle in them before they can come and play sport. What a fucking disgrace. Honestly, I just, I can't even believe that they, they did that into the kids, you know. And uh, so we had kids that were, you know, seriously depressed, you know, not coming out of their rooms, not eating, suicidal, you know, uh, all kinds. Uh, and their parents, you know, would be at reception crying with my, my, my wife and then I'd be in teaching the kids on the, and we took it away because we are, you know, like I said, it's a very technical martial art and it, it is, there's a lot of, you know, it is, you've got to really pay attention. But we took it right away. We just were having fun with the kids really through that time, teaching them one or two things. But really, it was all about just coming together as a community and just having a little bit of contact, you know, and the kids were loving it. And, uh, yeah, they're trying to shut us down. We had instances where they set us up and they're trying to, trying to G us up and the, the car park next door was full of car full of cop cars waiting for me to pop off so they could come in and look like the hero and uh yeah it was an interesting time you know they filled up the car park did you say to stop people coming uh there was three or four cars next door with cops there while WorkSafe was in at reception waiting for me to you know go King Kong so they'd come in and save the day you know and uh there was no aggression. I was just like, mate, I'm here for the kids. You know, if it was your kid, I mean, this is how disgusting it was. Even if a kid had a history of anaphylactic reaction to, to, to vaccines, you couldn't get a, a, a exemption. You couldn't get it. We had people that had anaphylactic and they said, oh, what we'll do is we'll just bring the team in uh, while you get your injection just in case you go in anaphylactic, you know which is basically a serious reaction where death is high on the cards. And, uh, you know, now it's all come out that these guys, half these guys that are actually putting needles on people that wouldn't give kids an exemption had exemptions themselves. How unbelievably hypocritical is that? <laughs> I mean, oh, 
honestly, mate, how are we not up in an uproar about what happened through that time? I mean, she was, you know, this is uh, public knowledge now. We've uh, asked for an official information act on, on regarding these issues, and this is what's come out. And now, you know, this lady was telling pregnant women to get, you know, for the, do it for your whanau, do it for your kids, pregnant women to have vaccines. We've got access to the document she had, and there was no information whether it was uh, it was safe for for pregnant uh, women. I mean, that alone—that's jail. That should be at least jail. You know how many kids? You know, I run for the loyal party, and uh, we had uh, coroners on there, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but he was saying maybe we have one or two still stillborns. You know, fully, you know, fully developed stillborns a month. We went to three and four weekly straight after the jab. You know, this is coming straight from people that are in the industry. You know, this is real, you know. And uh, for her to have that information and to lie to the public is unforgivable. And what's been the consequence for you of standing up? Are they still going for you? Yeah. Oh, mate, they just what they do is they uh, try and try and bankrupt you, you know, slowly. So it's just appearance after appearance. And obviously we've got to pay per appearance for our representation but uh now they've come up with it it's 15th and 16th of april they've booked us in for a two-day trial so uh we'll see who knows it's like we're living in a dual reality you know the the information is out now that this was an absolute farce it was an absolute scam but the uh the media and the the uh i don't know what you call it the top echelon of, of law and doesn't acknowledge it they just pretend like it, all this information isn't out there and they're just carrying on like, you know, what they did was justified. I suppose they have to, right? They're the ones that implemented it. They've got to see it right through and pretend that it was justified when all the information now proves that it wasn't. They've uh, either got to keep it going, haven't they, or they've got to run for cover quickly because they're going to be found, aren't they? Well, that's what I was listening to the other day. They were saying if you are waiting for doctors to come back and say, hey, we got it wrong, you're going to be waiting a long time because they're the ones that actually recommended this to their kids. They recommended it to their family and members. They recommended it to their community. And if they go back now and just say, hey, we got it wrong and potentially there's some lethal side effects, they're in the can, you know. So everyone's just stay pretending, yeah, stay in this dream world uh, because if you don't, you're going to, there's going to be an uproar and you're going to be the brunt of it. You are listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. And today I'm talking to Steve Oliver of Oliver MMA Gyms. So here's this, here's you, here's this man who's basically spent his life learning how to manage his health, to fight, to, you know, to carry on the tradition in his family. You've got on with it, you've just been doing it, and suddenly these individuals, and I've never heard such a, a more brilliant description of your work safe uh, person walking into your gym that everyone who's listening to this they should just record that a little bit because that to me was one of the most beautiful descriptions of the difference between someone who spent his life learning how to be a man how to be a warrior how to stand up and suddenly you were confronted by this and all you did was stood up but one of the things you didn't do which i think is really interesting is you didn't lose your cool you didn't go, as you call it, King Kong. They tried to set you up to have you do that. 
but they didn't know about the training. They didn't know about the mental discipline of your training, the mental discipline to stand up, the mental discipline to not overreact, and also the mental discipline to face reality. Because what we're seeing now is that vast chunks of the population seem unable to face reality. And what you've done throughout your life, as you say again and again, starting with that, well, maybe not starting, but that that guy who popped both your arms in a gym in America where you got humbled and your ego got challenged and you have this ego sense of being in reality and you just said, I'm not playing. And now you've been put in court for that. I hope Kiwis all over New Zealand come to that to, on the 15th and 16th of April. I hope they come there to support common sense over insanity. I think all the psychotherapists and all the psychologists and all the counsellors should be outside that courtroom supporting you because, because you're talking about sanity. And that's where you and I meet, right? That's where my work and my life has been about helping people stay grounded, be in reality, and function in life, yeah? And we meet on this area of reality. The perception is not always the reality. You know, when I walk, you know, when you're in an environment where, you you know, your, your physical safety depends on your reality, not potentially your perception, you know, working on the door in, in, in L.A., you know, I mean, um, many scenarios where, you know, it could turn lethal and and you've got to, you know, deal with reality, not not your perceived uh, threat levels. You know, it's just you've got to, you know, think critically. And, um, you know, the, the funny thing about WorkSafe is they're actually the institution that I go to as a business or an employee, I go to WorkSafe to um, to register my concerns around bullying in the work environment. You know, I'm supposed to go to these guys about bullying, and you guys are the ultimate bullies, man. You know, I mean, it's it's comical. It really is. And so this uh, this led you, Steve. I think this explains to some extent how you. Just a guy running a gym ends up standing for a party and standing as a representative for a party for New Zealand Loyal. You actually decided you were going to do that. Tell us a bit about that decision. That sounds like a whole new ball game for you. Yeah, well, I actually stood earlier too with Billy uh, Takahika in the, in the first one, you know, um, when we could see it was all going pear-shaped. You know, I mean, corruption in politics is uh, is real. I mean, you can see it, you know, look at the states. I mean, it's just an absolute, you know, it's a test case over there. And, and, and just the manhunt or the witch hunt that have gone after Trump and every possible, you know, impeachment after impeachment after Raiders House after tax evasion after whatever you want. It's just been, I don't think you couldn't, it wouldn't be a president or even a man in history that has been harassed and, uh, you know, just, put under the spotlight like that, man. I mean, honestly, you know, and all he wants to do is put this country back, you know, make it a great again. And it's that the phrase has turned into a, a slogan for hate now. It's just unbelievable. It really is. And, and a lot of these guys that, uh, you know, get it wrong. They get his his agenda wrong. They see it as an evil agenda. that's so disconnected from reality. I mean, these guys coming through, you know, the institutions, you know, the, the universities have all been bought and paid for. I mean, Soros and all these big entities have put so much money into these institutions and they're just getting them to, you know, just leading them on these institutions. They turn these people 
you know, they don't really educate them. They, just, they make them just smart enough to believe what they're told. You know, there's no critical thinking going on there. They just believe the, the narrative that's put in front of them. And they're just, I think it's past saving, I think, those institutions. I think you just need to start again. But, you know, what you're talking about is critical thinking. What you're talking about is reality-based and if you wanted any evidence that the pretty much, you know, the, the majority of New Zealanders are no longer capable of thought, at least not thought based on reality. I think they're thinking great theories all the time, but thought based on reality uh, would be, you know, when you looked at the political parties, here are all these other parties. <laughs> when I was looking around, here are all these other parties going to keep the tax system exactly as it is. And there's Liz Gunn and you guys in New Zealand Loyal saying, no, we only need 1%. We'll take a 1% transaction fee, and that'll do it. We'll have more money than any government ever needs. And, and, and people vote for a 30 40% tax. It's like turkeys voting for Christmas, you know? But the thing is, mate, they just say, oh, you know, that's life. I talk. I, I was pumping that, that, uh, that policy, and people just shrug their shoulders and just say, oh, that's life. Tax is just, man, it might be your life. Doesn't have to be our life. Did you know that before World War One, New Zealand didn't pay income tax? In World War One, they implemented a one percent income tax to get the to get the country moving again after the war. One percent after two years, they had made so much money they dumped it. In World War Two, they implemented a, I think it was a three percent income tax, and that has just gone up ever since. You know. And, you know, what's gone up? I mean, you know, all of this growing in that time is just a community of leeches at the top. You know, this bureaucracy gone mad, implementing all this. You know, when my father was around, you could do a subdivision with a ruler and a pencil on a, on a map and sign it off with a minimum charge. Now you've got a 100-page document of absolute dribble and supplemented with a, you know, a life-changing fee. I mean, you know, where's that fee going? It goes just to, be, to the bureaucracy, to paying these guys a, a substantial hourly rate so they, so they can they can put this document in front of them and just write this mind-numbing legalistic language for hundreds of pages. I don't know. I don't know whether they're conscious or they go into some semi-state or what they're doing when they're writing this document. And all that is is to, to make us, people that are running a business, look at the document, get five pages in, go cross-eyed, throw it over the shoulder and just say, okay, I need the, I need the experts to, to, to walk me through this so we pay another fee. But isn't it, isn't it a perfect system that we pay our taxes to fund this community of bureaucracy that hangs over our head that enforces this mind-numbing agenda on us. It's just unbelievable. They feel, you know, we pay them to do it. Well, some people have called it voluntary slavery, haven't they? Well, did you know, back in the old days, slaves, in, in, in Egyptian times, you would work all day, but you'd get free housing and free food. Now, I don't know who's better off. Because I haven't got guaranteed roof over my head. I haven't got guaranteed food, but I work all day. You know, at least those guys were working all day and they had a bed to come to. You know what I mean? Like, who's the slave? It's, it is. It's, it's a masterful system. But we, uh, 
stupid for you know continuing on in this like this we need to just think about it and do do something that's actually fair because it's a broken system and it's to the point now where if you follow the system you can't survive yeah you know it's a broken system if you follow the system you can't possibly survive you you've just about got to do something on it you know subsidy uh, income to try and survive it's it's mind numbing you know i mean it's unbelievable but this is what's happening to small and medium businesses globally you know they're putting all the weight on us you know we're getting taxed into uh to extinction big business has got the you know obviously the uh assets to you know to work out loopholes through the tax system and the guys that are sitting at home are getting paid handsomely you know i mean it's basically just communism you know we're back we're setting ourselves up to you know the guys no one works everyone gets a ubi and uh you know it's just it's not practical mate it just doesn't work i wonder in all your in all your life what has been the most traumatic time in your life would you say would you say it's been the last few years or have there been other traumas that you would say were greater than this Oh, different. You know, everything's. I've had, uh, you know, some challenging times in my life. And, you know, my dad died early. I, you know, I was asthmatic growing up, which was quite traumatic, you know, for a kid that didn't understand what was happening. And, you know, massive asthma attacks and days on end just trying to, to, to not uh, smut, to be smothered to death. You know, um, it was quite traumatic. I mean, yeah, different times, different things, you know, but uh, I wouldn't allocate this last few years as anything special. It's just. It's just another phase in, in in my life, but it's unnecessary. It's an unnecessary, and it's a, it's been a real eye opener, you know. As far as you think the government has got your back, where it's not true at all. You know, the government's got its own back, and the, and the people are just there to pay pay the wage, pay its wage, and you know, we we it's okay to lie to us, you know, blatantly lie, and uh, you know, these people are. I have no respect for these people that are running our well, you know, institution. Steve- We're kind of running out of time here. I'm going to get you back to talk about music in a bit. But, you know, when I, in the past, I always joked to people. It was a joke, by the way. I used to say when I become, you know, if anyone makes the mistake of making me Lord and Emperor of the universe, the only thing I want to make sure is that everyone can get some decent body work each week. And that if they wanted, they can have a psychotherapy session to sort out what's going on in their head and work out what they want in their life and, and have some support around that. But I'm going to add a third feature now. If anyone makes the mistake of you know, electing me Lord and Emperor of the Universe, I shall keep my massage and my psychotherapy. But, you know, I'm going to add jujitsu to that. I think from what, what you've said today about the power and the mental discipline and the, the psychological importance of jujitsu has just blown me away today, Steve, completely blown me away. Yeah, no, honestly, man, it's been a real asset in my life, and and it's and it should be an asset, you know. You know, a good club is just a real beautiful thing to uh, be a part of, you know. Just a great community. Well, thanks for sharing your life with us, Steve. I really appreciate your openness. I appreciate your courage, and I think we need a lot more. We need a lot more men who understand what it means to be a man, to stand up and to say no to what is evil, to what is corrupt, and to what is fundamentally just wrong. And I think your your gym is going to be a place where people like that are going to be brought up. And I, I love what you do. I've got such respect. 
just as a psychotherapist, the mental health element of what you're doing in your gym. And I think that's why I was so impressed when I heard about you staying open. And I thought, wow, you know, how can you quantify what someone does in terms of mental health and well-being and relationships and community? Very, very hard to quantify but you've done a great deal in that. And I want to thank you uh, for all that you do and all that you've done. And above all else, I want to thank you for spending this time talking with me and sharing with other with our listeners your life and what's gone through and how you how you navigate your life. Thank you so much. All right, thanks for your time, Jerry. It's been, a, been an honor, mate. Thanks for tuning in to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives, Tuesdays from 1 p.m. Well, that was some interview, wasn't it? And you're going to hear even more in the next segment where we're going to run straight into Steve's music with meaning. And hang on in right the way through to the end because the conversation goes very deep and very spiritual right towards the end. You don't want to miss this one. So welcome back, Steve. Welcome back to this section of the show that I call Music with Meaning. And we're looking at kind of which pieces of music take you back to certain times in your life. So, Steve, tell us what the first piece of music is that you got lined up for us. Yeah, just uh, going back to family times and, you know, uh, we were working family, but we'd have get together as extended family and friends and, um, you know, just a real popular one on uh, – my uh, mum and dad's playlist was, was Elvis, Suspicious Minds. And, uh, yeah, it just brings back pleasant memories of that time of, uh, you know, I mean, we weren't the perfect family. You know, dad was very busy and, you know, wasn't always around. But, you know, when he was, it was good. And just like I said, the, the getting together, you know, uh, parties at the gym and, and just, yeah, just wholesome, wholesome times uh, with the family, really, just bringing back uh, that, that particular song. And, you know, that was Elvis' heyday back in those days. And, yeah, just just good feelings and just general, you know, good times. Well, let's all take a listen to the iconic Elvis Presley singing Suspicious Minds. Yeah, the next one on the list, uh, you know, just... Obviously, starting uh, from a young age, I spent a lot of time in the gym and uh, had, you know, had a lot of uh, high achievers around me and, and uh, you know, it was always about performance. And I remember, remember my father had, a, you know, he had uh, many memories going to uh, Olympics and stuff. He said he, the strongest man he ever seen was a Russian. And he said that the Russians start training from a very young age. And I remember... You know, this this particular song was happening at the time, and the movies was was Rocky with uh, you know that theme song, Eye of the Tiger, and uh, those movies just really hit a chord with me around performance and being up against the odds. And you know, my father said that the the Russians had a particular program for for youth. You know, starting very very young, they'd go through and select the youth from different sports days, you know, different sport, different kids would perform in different events and they would be dragged off into these uh, programs. And I just thought that sounded great, you know. So I used to write my, uh, write letters, you know, quite frequently and hand them to my mum and say, oh, can you uh, deliver this to the Russians, you know. It was, a, it was a letter just saying, you know, I'm keen. You don't have to drag me off. I'm willing participant in your program. 
you know, let me come, you know. So <laughs> they obviously would have been shaking their heads, but I, I did. I engaged in, in, in quite uh, disciplined routine in the gym from a young age. I, you know, even seven, eight years old, I had a routine where I was sticking to quite uh, stringently. And, you know, I had a training partner from a very young age. Uh, you know, the, the guys there were very uh, welcoming. And, you know, I trained with a, a particular couple of guys and, yeah, one of these guys just died recently, actually. Uh, Jeff, uh, yeah, Jeff died probably uh, last month. But, um, yeah, these guys were probably 10 years older than me. I would have been maybe 10, or they might have been 12 years older than 10. They would have been like early 20s and, you know, really helped me and, you know, just be responsible about turning up on time and training hard. And, yeah, I have a tiger really stands out for me around that time. It's just a motivating, you know, movie. Oh, isn't it just? So we're going to move from the somewhat dissolute Elvis Presley. We're going to move to I Have the Tiger, which was obviously the theme tune for the Rocky film. Uh, it, just before we move on to that, Steve, you know, um, one thing I do share with you is um, as a youngster from about the age of seven, I was trained to be a chorister, a cathedral chorister, in the UK, it was, we had to get up early in the mornings. We were really disciplined. We, My education was earned by my singing. So when I was young, because we didn't have any money. And so uh, from a very young age, I learned a discipline. I don't think I could have self-imposed it. But because my parents said, you know, we can't afford you to go to this school. But if you can sing and stay in the choir, this will pay for your education till you're 18 years old. So that's what I did. It was in a Hereford Cathedral School. And so from a young age, I was trained to sing and to sing in singing competitions. And from a very young age, once I was at the cathedral from about the age of nine or 10, uh, we had to get up really early in the morning. We had to attend choir practice. All the other school kids turned up at like quarter to nine. And we were turning up at half past seven in the morning, doing an hour. And it was hard work, you know, singing scales, getting precision. The organ master and the choir master, you know, they wanted you to sing exactly so. There was no room for manoeuvre. You couldn't be a little bit sharp. You couldn't be a little bit flat. We were trained in diction, in singing and all this stuff every day. And then after school, when everyone went home and they were messing around playing stuff, we were back in the cathedral. I probably grew up in the cathedral. We were in the cathedral and we were doing training. We had to do another whole practice for about 45 minutes. Then we had to get changed. Then we had to process out in disciplined form and be very well behaved. Then we had the service. And then some weeks we had practice after that going on till 8.30 at night because of the men who did work, they'd come in and they needed to practice. So we'd stay on for another hour and a half, sometimes in the evenings. All through the weekend, we were singing. You know, our school didn't finish until one o'clock on Saturday. And then we had Saturday afternoon, long practices, more even song, three services on Sunday. So by the age of 13, when my voice broke, without realizing it, I'd been forced to learn the importance of structure and discipline and excellence, you know. So I can relate to what you're talking about, turning up, being trained. It really makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a real big uh, key for, for kids is learning to be accountable, you know, and giving the kids tools to, to be able to fail and to learn from their, from, you know, failing isn't the end of it. Failing is just an opportunity to learn. And this is where kids aren't being taught, you know, and I think this is why, you know, we've got a pandemic of suicide. I think, you know, 
these you know young adults, women, men, whatever, haven't been given the tools to be able to deal with loss or failure, you know, and uh, they just see it as it's all too hard, and I, I just can't go on, and it's a real, it's a real shame, and it's a tragedy, mate, you know, and uh, I think you know discipline at, at a young age, I think it's key. You know, you see the cultures that implement discipline at a young age, and, and uh, the, the, the adults are just super motivated, super organized, and, and uh, performing well, you know, at a high level. It's, I think it's key. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic of suicide, because this is something that I believe people like you and spaces like your gym are doing so much to alleviate. And I think that particularly for young men and young boys, the role of physical prowess and excellence is just so important. Uh, I know I make jokes of myself, but I used to do marathon running. I used to do fell running in the UK. Physical health was always important to me. Um, And I just want to shout out to what all the people, people who are listening, who are doing sports and physical activities, just to really, you know, value for them to value what they're doing for the mental health of of young people. You know, my I had three children, and I've already mentioned one, and, and another one is my youngest. He's been, he's recently got the training bug, and he's working out in gyms, and it's changed his whole mental attitude. And he, right now, as we talk, he's trekking in Kathmandu. Would you believe? You know, with a whole bunch of other other young fellas, pushing himself. You know, and I'm so proud of that. And my daughter, you know, she was in between the two boys and she played for England for ice hockey and she was ferocious with her discipline, completely self-imposed. You know, she knew what she needed to do to do well in her sport. So the mental discipline and what you say, the accountability uh, of sport. And I think something about sport also is the reality of it. You know, I used to say when I was running, uh, doing the mountain runs, that the one thing I could be sure of was regarding my weight the mud never lied. You know, when you're running through mud, the mud never lied. If you were overweight, it was hell. (laughs) This is the the culture. This is the culture that we're breeding is a victim mentality. This is exactly the culture that is bringing our people down, you know, and all people, you know, it's about, you know, this is what I see all the time in the gym. I see guys having personal issues with other people because when they train together, that person is maybe gets an armbar or, or gets a choke and the other guy thinks it's a personal issue. It's not a personal issue. Just learn how to not get caught in that position and the issue d- dies. I see it in the competition all the time. It's not my fault. It's the referee's fault. It's not my fault. It's the uh, my gym. My gym hasn't got the best training. Oh, I can't make those times. Those classes don't suit me. You, go, you can r- write a long list of, mate, the thing is accountability is the key. You've got to, mate, if I lose, it's no one else's fault but mine. And I have to take that on the chin so I can actually learn and move forward better for the experience. If I I see it all the time, parents, so it wasn't your fault, son, it was the referee. Mate, you've just robbed your child of an opportunity to learn. I don't care whose fault it is. If, if I've lost, I've got to find some way to, to pull that onus back on me so I can learn from the experience. So what, if I, I can't if I can't learn the whole the whole experience has been a waste, you know. So I go, I say okay, the referee got it wrong, but at the end of the day, if the guy was that close to me, if we were so evenly skilled, you know, uh, matched, I shouldn't let the referee be able to do that. I need to train hard enough so that now next time I win by a head and shoulders. You know, I shouldn't let it get so close next time. It was my fault 
for letting it be so close. You know, I've got to, you know, honestly, this is what we have to do with our kids is, is give them the skills to learn from, from failure. Totally. Love what you're saying, Steve. And let's move on now and listen to Eye of the Tiger, which is a great and inspirational piece of music. To get the full experience of The Real People Show, listen live on Tuesdays at 1pm or to the live stream Rewind Editions each week on Tuesdays at 10pm and Saturday at 11am. And if that's not possible, we know you'll still love this chat with Jerry and his guest. And a reminder, you can check out the show notes for more information about the music played by checking your app or visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash Jerry. That's www.realitycheck.radio forward slash G-E-R-R-Y. So you've just been listening to Eye of the Tiger, which is one of the inspirational pieces of music that gets Steve right back, reminds him of his, his training days, and we had a great chat about discipline. Steve, what's your third piece of music for us, and what does it remind you of? Yeah, just when I was going through adolescence, you know, I didn't really, uh, school wasn't a subject I really excelled at, and I found myself, you know, with a couple of, uh, you know, hard case mates, we wouldn't really attend a lot, you know, and uh, I just remember being around at a friend's house and playing Pink Floyd the Wall, you know, and it just, uh, just those times just really, you know, was a bit of a time of rebellion, you know, I was uh, just finding myself and, and I, later on in life, I actually really uh, found out that I did love to learn. I, I learned Portuguese. I, I speak just with the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I had that. I found myself in Brazil and submerged in a, a you know with no English environment. So I had to learn it pretty quickly over there. And but just you know Jiu-Jitsu, we're always learning. It's just I found out later in life that I did really love to learn and, and topics that I liked, I'd really engage in and love it you know but uh just the environment at school wasn't productive to uh motivating me to learn anything so uh i just really rebelled and thought it was a waste of time so uh yeah pink Floyd the wall really sums that area up for me yeah it's kind of tragic isn't it how schools put people off learning i i actually started life as a teacher and um this track came out the wall came out uh in my i think it was my fourth year of teaching and uh, I, was, I was the one encouraging the kids to listen to it. <laughs> I thought it was an awesome track and so true. But, you know, um, here in uh, here in Wanaka in the lockdowns, uh, many parents wanted to, um, they wanted to, you know, stop. They were worried that kids were going to get forcibly jabbed at schools. There was a period of time when that was very much a threat that was in the air. And it happened in a couple of schools, actually, in New Zealand. So quite a few parents took their kids out of school. Um, they were also so angry because their kids weren't allowed to play sports because that was the big thing for the kids. They were stopped. If you weren't vaccinated, you could turn up to school, but you could not play sport. Well, given what we've said about mental health, that's a real devious move, isn't it? Oh, just really putting the kids on display. Look at these losers, you know, like, oh, they're not as good as us. Like real segregating society. What a what a punk move, honestly. What a especially at a time when kids, you know, 13, 14, really are finding out who they are and, and their network is everything to them. You know, what a absolute oh, there's just no words for it, really, is there? You know, a, 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 a 
facility or, or, or you know, school or a sporting uh, fraternity that would do that to kids, I, I yeah, it's uh, beyond words, mate. I, I just got no respect. I just really, yeah, abhorrent, really. Well, when I started learning that local parents were taking their kids out of school, um, and I wanted to do my bit, so I said I'd run a weekly history class because I, I started life as a history teacher. And uh, although I have to say, you know, um, I just learned something about history from you, man. Uh, that business around the Egyptians and their slavery, I hadn't really worked that one out. So thank you for that. That's been a real, real valuable piece of information for me. But the, the kids would turn up here. There was so much fun. I mean, it was such a blessing to have them. They just turned up at my house and we got in the dining room and we started learning stuff. But what was interesting is I there's about eight or nine of them. And I said, OK, well, you get to choose what we study. What do you want to know about? You know, oh, man, we had we. We had such amazing. One of the kids said, oh, "I want to learn about the battle that Gideon fought in the Bible," and I thought, "Wow, Gideon's strategies in the Bible were awesome." As a martial arts man, you probably appreciate that, but I don't know if you're aware of that. But you'd never see that on a history syllabus in a school. <laughs> oh, history is an amazing topic, isn't it? I mean, history is just you know, there's I love history. You know, what I mean, and and, and that, you know those those stories from the Bible were you know that. They are people boo-hoo them and it's all not true and that and then they start digging up over in the you know in the Middle East and sure enough there it all is there and it's just I, I keep in touch with that it interests me over uh, you know online and that and they, they're just digging up relics that just really you know prove the tr Bible's true time and time again it's really very very interesting mate. Well, that would be a very interesting conversation, but I'm going to move on and I'm going to say, let's have a listen to this rebellious piece of music. I think probably the anthem of every smart school kid in history. And playing this tune is probably a good documentary and uh, a great truthful statement about some of the stuff that goes on in school. That's Pink Floyd, The Wall. So you've just been listening to The Wall by the iconic band Pink Floyd. Happens to be probably my favourite band in the whole of history, but there we go. Um, so, Steve, here I am uh, with you, Steve Oliver, looking at your life through music. What's the fourth track of music you got for us to listen to? Uh, I mean, I went through that. I wasn't at school. I finished in third form and got a job. So I was uh, I was working from a young age and, uh, you know, I had good friends, but I outgrew my friends quite early. Uh, I felt that they were... No focus. They were absolute lunatics for a starter, but they were very unfocused and they had no focus. I had lifting, you know, I had weights and this was my uh, passion in life. And I just didn't really relate to a lot of my peers at the time. So I really just dug head and shoulders from about probably 15 years old, 16 years old, really committed to the lifting. And um, I, uh, I was drain laying for a couple of years and then I started at the gym and I'd, my routine would be I'd get up at 6 a.m. or, you know, I'd, I'd open the gym at 6 a.m. and I'd go through to about 1.30 and then I would uh, go home, have a big feed and and go to sleep for a couple of hours. Then I'd wake up about 4.30, have another feed and then I'd just put some motivational sounds on and really just really get my head in, in a place of power, you know, I'd just really power up psychologically for this event 
that I would, uh, you know, step in the gym at six o'clock and go to war, you know, and that was the mindset. It was a real, uh, uh, you know, explosive type of sport and it was just mentally preparing. And I, I remember one person saying it's the guys that dream at night you don't have to worry about, but it's the guys that dream during the day. And this was me dreaming at, you know, visualization of me winning world titles, me lifting a certain weight, me doing all this sort of stuff would be I'd just sit there while this music was playing and just visualize myself, you know, winning titles, lifting certain weights, just, you know, dreaming during the day. And and, and that visualization, I think, is massive in sport. I don't think it's used enough. And uh, for me, that was really key. So I'd get up about 4.30, put on a, a playlist, you know, and, and this is just one of many songs that we I used to play, but it was pretty – powerful type of music, you know, just to put me in that uh, spirit of, uh, you know, getting after it in the gym. Which is, the, what's the song then? It's uh, from Pantera. It's called Domination. Cool. I mean, just before I put it on, um, what you said about, you know, the power of visualisation, um, I think also really important was the fact that if you're moving your body and and pushing your body, while you're thinking of these things, I think it has a, a really added impact. It's almost like the exercise embeds the dream, the thing that you're aiming for in your life, the thing that you want in your life. The exercise embeds it in the body as you're moving. And I can testify to that in terms of the, the when I was used to do a lot of running, I would be focusing on the things I wanted. And you're talking about not just visualization, you're talking about visualization and physical activity, I think. Is that right? Yeah, well, I'd visualize the physical activity to come, you know, and I'd visualize achieving high levels of, of performance. And, uh, yeah, you know, that was a real time where I'd just power up mentally. I'd put myself in this bulletproof mindset of just I'm going in there, I'm just absolutely going to war, you know. So uh, every, you know, my father's German, you know, he thought it was entertaining to a point, but, uh, you know, it got to the point where it wasn't entertaining anymore. I was lifting stupid weights and uh, destroying the gym, and, yeah, he wasn't so impressed at the <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time of my life where I really started to mature as a man. And I, I remember I uh, put on, when I was 16, I was 67 kilos, so I put on 30 kilos in three months. And that was, that's natural. That's just eating and just, catching the hormones just right and obviously the far you know my my uh bloodlines have size in it but um you know just to catch that growth spurt you know feeding it properly you know getting the right sleep my father always used to say say it's three pillars right food right exercise and uh right rest you know so uh right sleep right food right exercise so you've got to get those three three things right and and it's all about balance too in your life as far as health mentally and physically you've got to get the right balance through physical spiritual and, and mental challenges you know so we're all put together in different elements in our lives we're not all just physical so when you go physical you, you're feeling like you're missing it in other areas and it's a balance to it you know there is a balance to it and uh, if you get those three pillars right you really excel wonderful so that's great we're going to listen to domination by pantera so you've just been listening to Domination by Pantera, the piece of music that got Steve Oliver 
going in the morning. Steve, did I hear you correctly? Did you say you were training from 6.30 until 1.30? Oh, I'd go, I'd go to the gym. I'd, I was working in the gym. So I'd, uh, I'd, you know, help. I'd be a PT. I'd go in there, show people their exercises, look after the gym floor. And then at 1.30, I'd come home and eat and prepare for my night training session. Right. Understood now. Yep. That makes sense to me. So what's your fifth piece of music for us, Steve? Well, after after I finished lifting, I there was a transition period, actually, and it was quite interesting. I was at a uh, Pantera concert in Auckland, and uh, I got into a situation with a, you know, a decent-sized uh, human um, that was picking on one of my friends, and and my friend wasn't up to the challenge, so I stepped up and just said, hey, you know, leave him alone. So me and this uh, this guy uh, got into it. It was uh, – got into a fight at this Pantera concert before it even started. And um, and I was, you know, phys- you know strength-wise I was good, but like I said, I was asthmatic. And uh, I, you know, couldn't put this guy away early, and I started to get asthma and um, – and I just couldn't put this guy down, and I got really frustrated, and ended up getting the job done. But you know, it wasn't. Uh, you know, I was highly disappointed in my performance afterwards. So I was like, man, I've got to learn how to wrestle or jujitsu. And that's when I seen uh, Brazilian jujitsu in a in a no rules contest. And I was like, man, that jujitsu is exactly what I need. I know I ha- I know I have like you know good hands or can throw punches. But if the punches don't come off, this is the next phase, and I like the wrestling side of things. And that was a really key event in my life that uh, put me into uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was at a Pantera concert. So then after after I uh, started with Jiu-Jitsu, my instructor in New Zealand left after about eight months. He left, and uh, my dad had died, and I said, well, there was no one else in New Zealand training this particular type of Jiu-Jitsu. He says, well, Go and see my instructor in uh, the US. So I went over there, and that was my time in the States in LA. And um, I was working security at the Opium Den, uh, which is a famous bar in, in Hollywood. And uh, I was with Henry, and Henry was talking to this guy. And this guy was had no clothes on apart from this, like a Greek or, you know, like an adult nappy type of thing on this white piece of cloth. And he was bald and he was painted blue. And this guy was quite small, you know. And I walked over just out of interest, you know. I just started talking to him. And and then this guy walks off, you know. I said to Henry, who's your mate? You know, and he says, check this out. And this guy jumps up on stage. This uh, opium den, it's not a big bar. It's, uh, you know, it's quite a personal intimate type of bar and he get, jumps up on the stage and he grabs the mic and he says all you guys that think you're coming to the after party can all piss off you know and then boom he drops tall it was maynard the lead singer at all when i knew like i was a fan of tall but i you know this guy was quite uh you know he never put his face out on media or anything i just he, you know he's quite a secretive figure and uh yeah to see and then just this concert sound come through this small bar, just goosebumps, mate. The whole, just lit the whole bar up just with this powerful sound of tool, you know. And uh, yeah, that was the first night I met him. And uh, we became uh, quite uh, key, you know, um, figures around 
Maynard and security with Tool for many years in the States would go to many gigs and look after him personally. And when he'd come out to New Zealand, I'd help out. And yeah, just great memories of the time I was overseas, you know, training and going to Tool concerts on the regular and just good nights, you know. Yeah, really, really good. So that was, uh, this song is called uh, Stink Fist from Tool. Let's have a listen to that. Thanks for tuning in to Real People with Jerry Pives. Do you have a guest suggestion for Jerry? If you know someone who has an interesting life story, maybe that someone is you, then please get in touch. Jerry would love to get your feedback, so please send us a text on 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio to let us know your thoughts about his show. That's your message to 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Normal texting charges apply. So that was Stink Fest by Tool, and I'm talking to Steve Oliver. And Steve, what's your sixth track for us? I just, um, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, just training overseas. I was with, you know, obviously I had a great network of friends in, in L.A. and, you know, uh, Henry Aikens, Shane Rice, uh, and uh, Hickson's son, Hoxon was alive at the time. He was uh, a big part of it. So we had a quite a cool little group, but I still did get homesick from time to time. And uh, I remember, you know, uh, complaints coming through the household around, I'd throw the haka on because YouTube was starting to become a thing. I'd put on Tana Umanga's haka when he's standing at the front leading it out. And, uh, you know, just really brought me back home, you know, uh, to our culture and, you know, our people, I mean, we're all one people, man, this whole segregation thing, you know, trying to blame history and all that for what's happened in the past. I mean, life's not perfect, man. There has been atrocities uh, made on on all sides. Uh, this generation at the moment is not, not responsible. You know what I mean? Uh, we, we've all, we're all here, all care about each other. You know, we should all just move on. Uh, as one people, I think that's key for our country, and it's always has been the key. I mean, growing up, there was never any of this racial crap that's going on now. I remember, you know, like Kelston Boys, man, I was the only Halangi in my year, you know, my form for that year. I mean, me and, me and one other, and you know, we were all best of friends with Maori, Pacific Islanders. Oh, you know, we used to the word Halangi get thrown around, and but so did uh, you know, so did Bucktooth or whatever, got four eyes or whatever, you know, like, it's nothing racial. It's just they pick whatever, you know, pigeon toe. Kids are just ruthless. They'll just pick whatever they can to hammer each other, you know, and it's all done and we're just all kids, man. We're just all growing up and it was just, there was no racial nonsense going on. It's, uh, I think it's sad the way that people are really getting, you know, grabbing this thing and, and making it out to be something it, it really isn't. You know what I mean? Uh, we just won people in, uh, you know, there was a great time back in those days. You'd go to a camping ground, everybody's best mates, and we just got to hold on to who we are as a people. But, yeah, for me, overseas was, uh, you know, I'd always love throwing on the haka and, and drowning out the uh, the flatmates with uh, the old war dance that would uh, get people... <laughs> get people's back up, but nah, it was good times. Loved it. Nice one. So we're going to now listen to the hacker.
So that was the Haka. Steve, tell me a little bit about who that was leading that. Yeah, my particular favourite piece would be old Tana. You know, he kept in the All Blacks for a long time. He'd be up there clawing at his chest, throwing it down. And, uh, you know, they have the dreadlocks. He just looked the part, man. He was a, he was a you know, warrior captain and uh, really, you know, I used that for motivation a lot. Well, we're coming to our last track now, Steve. Um, and I'm sure many people will have enjoyed listening to you. Um, this last piece, tell us what you like to play and what it does for you. Yeah, this is from Hillsong. It's a beautiful name of Jesus. I uh, just my path, you know. Just looking back on it, you know, like I was a wayward youth, you know, real uh, quite um, bad uh, anger issues, and just wanted to do everything my own way, you know. And I can see, looking back, there's been a hand over my life, just you know, putting me in places that I needed to be. As far as you know, I was arrogant. You know, he led me into uh, you know combat industry, which humbled me, which has brought me full circle. And I, you know, I I was always quite bitter about uh, you know my father not being around, and you know he was really motivated. He was a motivated man, and he was into business. And he, you know, before that, he was a high level achieving athlete and everything. But you know, now I'm an adult. I'm a father. I can see, you know, his he just wanted to provide for the family, and he was doing his best. You know, and uh, it's a challenge, you know, to try and do better for the next generation. But I find myself falling into different traps where I need to check myself too. It's a, uh, it is, it's an interesting process. But I've seen, you know, I've just seen a hand, you know, in my life and protecting me in certain times, you know. I've been in some situations, many situations where I shouldn't have made it out, you know. Sorry, I'm working on bars, car crashes, you know, just numerous events where you know, the odds weren't stacked in my favour and I just see a hand that's been present in my life right through. And, um, you know, my father was uh, right into the church and I just, you know, we went to quite a, uh, it was quite a disciplined church and I just rejected the whole thing because he was, his message was, oh, you know, if you don't do what you're told, you're going to hell. And I was like, well, you know, it looks like I'm going to hell, so I might as well have a good time while I'm here, you know. So, and this particular preacher really, uh, was really anti, you know, really preached this hate message. And it's just not, it's just totally wrong. You know, as you get older, you just understand, like, my goals growing up was to be a, a sporting god, you know. And, and and then I got exposed to these guys, these world champions, absolute legends in the sport. And I could just see they were achieving high in one area, but their personal lives were, were absolute crap. You know, they're on their fourth marriage. They had no relationship with their kids. They, their lives were just falling apart. So I could see that that wasn't an end goal, really. You know, to achieve, you know, a great high level in sport was great, but to actually have a good life, it wasn't really part of the puzzle. So I just started to dig in and, you know, I just wanted to, if these guys, these guys have been my role models my whole life, and I can see that when I got close to them, they weren't all that. You know, they were just humans, and they're getting a lot of it wrong. So I started to, you know, delve into my past, and you know, Dad used to, you know, really adore Jesus. You know, so I just let's have a look, let's have a read. You know, so I started to read, and just, you know, just this, uh, the man himself, what a role model. You know, what I mean, what a what a leader, what a king, you know, to actually take it for the team. What a beautiful story, you know, people that haven't, you know, if, if you're not into religion, whatever, it's not religion. It's a, it's one of the most beautiful love stories uh, ever written, you know. And and the thing is, like we were talking about before, it's they just keep proving this thing. How many coincidences does it take before you just say, hey, this thing might have some relevance that might be actually true, you know. And it's just, you know, these things, 
have synced up prophecy, you know, foretold prophecies just around who Jesus was and the time he was born, where he was supposed to be born, how he was supposed to die. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies being foretold thousands of years before he was actually uh, born, you know what I mean? And it all came true. And then you're talking about modern times with, you know, the way the Israel's coming back into a, in, into the land. And that's been foretold. And that took 4,000 years to happen, you know, and just all these things keep coming true. And you just, in the end, you just say, hey, you know, if a dozen coincidences is enough to look at it, these, these are hundreds and hundreds of coincidences. You can't just pass it off as just random. You've got to actually start doing some research and then, and I just come to the fact where well, I can't, it's going to take me more faith to believe that this isn't true than to actually accept it, you know? So, yeah, I just, you know, decided, man, that's it. This guy is worth following, you know? And, um, I mean, look at our leaders. Our leaders, you know, they sell you out. They're selling their people out. They're traitors to their countries. I mean, what a, what a leader Christ was. They'd actually, you know, would willingly die for the team. You know, what a leader, what a king that would actually lead from the front. Man, I'd, you know, I'd bow a knee to a king that would, you know, take it for the team every day. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I really got inspired by Jesus' story. And, yeah, it's just uh, been a real asset to my life. And I can just see, you know, the truth of his reality and, and the whole story of humanity that he's just trying to, God is just trying to reach out and actually connect with humanity, you know. So, yeah, it's been a process, mate. But, uh, you know, honestly, like, it just it's uh, it's been been epic. And you can just see that uh, we're not just here to be born, die, pay taxes, and and that's the end of it. You know, we're here for a purpose, you know, and, and it's inspiring. That's where a lot of people are, have lost motivation to live is because they don't think they've got a purpose. But, man, there's a loving God there that is. Our purpose is to have a relationship with God, you know what I mean? And, uh, oh, it's epic, man. It's epic. So uh, it's just really, I, I go to church to power up. I used to listen to Pantera and Tool to power up. Now I go to church, you know, it's unbelievable. You know, the transformation of my life of just, you know, powering up on, on you know, plugging into the source of life itself. It's epic, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I just really love that song, you know, just uh, praises the man that, uh, you know, did it all. Wow. That is such an eloquent and moving description, really, of the role of Christ in your life and spirituality. Um, I'm really struck by what you said, actually, and I think I've heard it elsewhere as well, that it takes more faith to not believe than to believe. If you actually examine the Bible, if you actually examine the evidence, but isn't that what we've been hearing? Isn't that where I'm beginning to get suspicious, finding that exactly the same pattern of deception, cunning, deceit, and evil has been played out in relation to Christianity as has been played out to personal health decisions or you know decisions about what we should be able to do? It's the same exact pattern. And then I looked in Revelations and I found in Revelations that they talked about um, people needing to wear the sign of the beast. And guess what they did? They put some kind of, they don't use the word implant in Revelations, but it sounds like an implant. And they put also a mark on the wrist. And when they're talking about this right now, they're talking about ID and they're talking about implants. And it's written in Revelations. 
coincidence. I mean, when they were trading shiny bits of silver for food, they were talking about a mark that you wouldn't be able to buy and sell without the mark. You know, I mean, like all this, all this technology is all coming in coincidentally at the right time. They're talking about a one world leader. They're talking about a one world government. They're talking about all the nations coming against Israel. They're talking, mate, all this stuff is all just a big coincidence. But I tell you, the truth movement, there's a lot of people that are critical thinkers that are quite spiritually aware. You know, I think the masses that are, that are willing to put two and three masks on to save their grandmother are spiritually asleep. But I think a lot of critical thinkers are spiritually aware, and they are. They're actually looking at at different things, and they're just weighing it up and going, what is the truth? You know, and, and Christ said himself, I am the truth. You know what I mean? It doesn't get any purer than that. I am the truth. You know, if you're looking for the truth, here I am. And it's, and you're talking about that the same root, uh, the same uh, system of lies that led, you know, us to, you know, with health issues and all that, but the same system of lies led Christ to the cross. I mean, he stood there and was absolutely, you know, false accusations left, right, and center, but he said nothing, you know. He knew what was coming for him. He knew what was going to happen. And, you know, trying to argue against these false uh, accusations was pointless, you know. And that's what it says in the Bible. He would go like a sheep to the slaughter, you know. It's just unreal. But, you know, what really turned my eye to the whole uh, reality of Christ being who he was is that he had 12 disciples, mate. How many people are willing to die for a lie? I mean, people die for lies all the time, but they don't actually know it's a lie. You know, to die willingly for something that you know is a lie is very, very rare. The whole 12, the whole 12 died for life. Well, one, one got boiled alive and actually lived through the experience and was, you know, set on a uh, deserted island. But the other 11 died. I mean, you know, and they, they were the ones, witnesses. They, they were saying, mate, we've seen this guy come back to life. You know, it wasn't just them. It wasn't just them. There was many, it says in the Bible, it says, mate, you know, while this while this has been written, I'm not the only one that witnessed it. There's hundreds of people that seen him alive. Go and ask them. You know what I mean? But 12, uh, 11 of these guys would actually willingly go to their death saying that this guy come back to life. That's pretty, you know, that's pretty uh, hard to beat. You know what I mean? And one one even said, you know, they, they said, mate, you keep telling this, this story about Christ coming back to life. We're going to crucify you. He says, man, that is an honor that I don't deserve to die like Christ. I'll die. If, you, if you're going to crucify me, can you please crucify me upside down? And they did. They died. Like he died, crucified, upside down, mate. I mean, you know, people don't do that unless they're really compelled uh, about what they're talking about, you know. And these guys witnessed him coming back from the dead and were willing to die for it. That's a pretty strong statement right there. I think that is such a profound argument in that, you know, an argument to invite people to open their hearts to Christ because at the end of the day, it's a spiritual matter. And like you you know, that that story of, uh, it was so impactful on me. I've been a Christian since I was 13, but I, I've i left and walked away from Christ many, many times. So I'm no holier than thou, Joe. But I think that the very, very few people could argue against the idea that if you knowingly, if you're lying, are you going to die for that lie? If these apostles were making up these stories about Jesus, really, they'd actually die for it? Because I don't know of anyone in history 
who's knowingly died for a lie. That, uh, people have died for belief. But oh, mate, you, might get, you, might get group, you know, there's always one guy that's trying to be the guy, you know. You might get one lunatic, you know, and, and, and a handful of people. But, mate, the whole lot, 100%, 100% willing to die for what they're saying. Nah. No way. And I loved what you said, Steve, about so many people. I mean, my brothers and sisters, everyone in the truth of movement, everyone who's woken up, everyone who's taken it on the chin, because the people that really took it for the team were the people that stood up and lost their jobs and got ostracized yeah. by their family. These are the people that really took it for the team because it's the hardest thing to do. And many of the people listening are those people. And I have such respect for the people listening and people that are listening who still believe in governments, you know, God bless you, but do your research, you know, find out for yourself. But, you know, when it comes to spirituality, I have seen such a spirituality in the truth movement, in the people that have stood up. It's like they hold to something really powerful, deep, deep within them and their spirit. But I, I also know that many of them have been hoodwinked by the lies and also by the terrible history. Look, the Christian church has done some terrible things, but so has everyone else, you know. But to believe that it's not true is, I think, the ultimate yeah. hoodwink, uh, ultimately. Yeah. yeah no, we're destined to fail as humans. I mean, that's the whole message. Adam and Eve failed. You know, he says, there you go. There's you've got the perfect scenario. All you got to do is not do that. Boom, they do it. You know, and he says, mate, I'll try and, you guys can try and uh, get yourself right by doing the right thing. You know, you're doing so, doing all these, uh, you know, systems of sacrifices and washing your hands five times, clapping five times, doing 50 burpees after every sin and that. But it's, un it's unachievable. You know, it's unachievable. And God says, mate, I know that this is unachievable. He says, in, in the end, he says, I'll go and do it for you. You guys are so useless. I'll come down, lead a perfect life, and be the sacrifice. You know what I mean? So in the end, God says, mate, it's not what you do. It's it's not through what through works that you guys can brag about how good you are. You guys are absolutely useless. He says, what I'll do is I'll come down. I'll come down and pay the price for you. All you guys got to do is believe, and uh, it's a done deal. It's not through how good you are. It's just through how loving I am that you guys are going to get over the line, you know. It's an amazing story, mate. I'll tell you what, you, you know, and the further we get away, it's just a coincidence, the further we get away from the Bible and the home truths of, you know, just good good moral uh, hygiene, you know, living, uh, the deeper we get into the quagmire of, you know, hate and, and uh, segregation and deception and, you know, they're taking Bible out of schools and taking, you know, prayer out of governments. They're taking all this. And it's just coincidence that, you know, the more we get away from biblical principles, the worse society becomes. Well, I think you've just answered the question that really my program is all about, which is what makes you tick? And I think you've just answered that. Would that be a fair, a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole process around sport, around, you know, just... Uh, uh, just life, yeah. It's just to try and be a person that can actually, you know, give back and support other people and uh, be productive in society. That's that's the ultimate achievement, you know. At the end of the day, so medals and all the rest of it doesn't really acquire for much, you know. It's uh, nice at the time, but it uh, loses its uh, its shine pretty quickly. And you know, being a great dad, you know, being a great friend, I think it all matters. I think that's what matters. I think that's what we're getting, you know, the competition. I think that's the competition right there is 
you know, and I try and hold myself. I'm definitely not any holier than thou. I am not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, I need, you know, it's right back to every engagement. I think we're responsible uh, at that level, you know, every engagement, every every time you talk to your friend, every time you talk to your kids, try and make it, you know, a good one, a good interaction and something worth doing, you know, something worth being, known, you know, leaving and contributing to this world through, you know. Well, Steve, um, many of the listeners are people who, like you, have stood their ground. Many of them are great contributors to their community. Many of them go the extra mile for the people they, they know and care about. So I think they'll be very inspired by this conversation. I certainly have been inspired. I can't speak for them, but I can speak for myself. I've been really inspired by this conversation with you. Um, you're a guy with his feet firmly on the ground and also with your heart big and open and you're standing up for everyone in New Zealand when you go to that trial on the 15th and 16th of March, is it, or April? April. Well, I'd like to invite anyone who believes in the importance of truth to turn up and support you. Is it okay if I ask people to go and support you? Is that to bother you? No, not at all. I mean, you know, like, you know, I've just been paying for the experience up until now. So if I get my time on the stand, I'm just, I'm definitely going to get my money's worth, mate. <laughs> you know, I'm going to let, let them know what I think about their, their whole, the whole mess, you know. So, uh, you know, if that's if that's what's going to, you know, if I'm going to pay whatever, you know, uh, 70, 80K in fines plus lawyer's fees for for a moment to stand up on there, well, they're going to have to pull me off. You know what I mean? They have to pull me off the stand telling them of, of uh, kind of uh, what I what I think about the whole scenario. So uh, it'll be entertainment at least. <laughs> well, God bless you, Steve, for all that you do and all that you have done and all that you will do in the future. And um, thank you for being generous with your time and open with your conversation to sit in the psychotherapist chair with me, Jerry Pives, on Real People. Stephen Oliver, thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Jerry. Being an honor, mate. Privilege. Thank you. You've been listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. Tuesdays from 1 p.m. on RCR, Reality Check Radio.